0: Right where we left off last week, preaching on the four F's, the four F's is the way to what with God? It's the way to take all the teaching of the Bible in the Old and New Testament and consolidate it into a workable life with God. The four F's are fellowship, focus, function, and fruit. These four principles or four laws always work together, never apart. They work consecutively. We begin with fellowship with God. From it, He gives us focus. Out of that focus comes the Holy Spirit's energy working in us to function. And finally, the result is there's fruit in our life. So if we're disillusioned or disappointed that we're not seeing fruit in our life, let's look at the four F's. Somebody say amen. So we are on focus, and our text for this particular portion is Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking away to Jesus, the founder and perfecter or developer of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. And so there was joy set before Jesus. That was the joy he fixed his focus on. And he endured the cross as despicable as its shame was. That joy before Jesus was you and I. Hallelujah. Seeing us, having us, winning his bride. You could say that Jesus laid down, if you will, that dowry. Uh, he, He purchased and made the bride with the sacrifice of Calvary. That's what he was looking at. That was the joy set before him. So I've shared some important things about focus when I was in the pulpit the last couple of times. This morning, I've got a couple of things that I know will really help you, and I I believe will encourage you. First of all, focus has two parts. There's two elements to focus. They are the inner and the outer focus. Inner focus and outer focus working together uh, give us true godly focus. Look at it like this. Outer focus is what you look at. Inner focus is what you see when you look at what you're looking at. So what you look at plus what you see equals focus. Now God's focus requires both outer seeing and inner understanding. It's not enough to just simply look at something in order to see it. People always look at things without understanding what they're looking at. They look at one thing, but they see another. And you can tell by asking a half dozen people to describe something that they're looking at. You may look at someone in dirty clothes, driving a beat-up pickup truck, and see a redneck on a beer run. (laughs) Um, But your focus might not be real. It might not be a redneck on a beer run. In reality, he may be a successful contractor heading to Home Depot or a pastor working with his members on a project at the church. You see, the reality of things is never known until both outer and inner clarity come together. Seeing that pickup driver as a, as a beer-swilling trailer trash is what we call subjective focus. Everyone say subjective focus. It makes the driver subject to your opinion. But if you let yourself see him for what he really is, how God sees him, that is objective focus. So godly focus is necessary for Christians because it frees people from the captivity of opinions that are forced on them by people that look at them but don't know what they're looking at. If you're going to minister to other people, you need godly focus. You need objective focus. Most of the time, conviction from the Holy Spirit falls upon us, and it's usually God trying to correct the way we see things. Think about it with me. See if you don't agree. You may have to take that statement home and ponder it a little bit, but I believe that the majority or the largest percentage of conviction that the Holy Spirit brings on people has to do with God trying to correct the way they look at things. You see, only the Holy Spirit can give you true focus. He wants you to let Him show you what you're looking at. Nowhere more than in marriage is the need for the four F's evident. Fellowship, focus, function, and fruit. A married couple can only function fruitfully when their fellowship produces true focus. How many married people complain that their spouses don't really see them? Not necessary to raise hands, but I, every time I ask that question, I always see some heads kind of go down. You see, the vision for a happy marriage is lost when couples don't see what they're looking at in each other. They look at each other, but they don't really see the person that is there on the inside. You see, outer focus without inner clarity equals dysfunctional marriage. And let me tell you, having done a fair amount of marriage remedial ministry over the years, I think Kathy and I could both attest to the fact that most of the dysfunction in marriage comes from this. Not seeing with true godly focus when we look at one another. And if you don't see one another, you can forget all the little, you know, the little um, uh, uh, routines that counselors like to put people in. If if those routines are not designed to break the bad habit of imposing on one another a negative image, rather than letting God show you who you're married to. It's not going to amount to anything, and it's not going to break the dysfunction. You need a 4F marriage. Put your hand, if you're a married person, put your hand on your heart and say, I need a 4F marriage. You know, it's the world's worst feeling to be in a relationship with someone who has subjected you to a negative, inaccurate image of yourself that they have fixed in their mind. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this, have felt that terrible feeling? It is awful. Because you can't talk your way out of it or explain your way out of it, <clears throat> the person who's viewing you sees what they want to see, and sometimes, no matter what you try to show them, they're already settled on how they see you. And that's all they're going to see until God changes their focus from subjective to objective focus. And that's why prayer and fellowship with God is absolutely essential if you're going to have true focus because only God can explain to you who your spouse is. Only God can explain to you who other people are. When you're in Walmart or at Publix or you're stopped in some situation at at work and talking with somebody, Are you letting God show you who you're talking to? By the way, let's take it a step further. Only the Holy Spirit can show you who you are. Maybe, maybe your focus is subjective about yourself, and you need God's objective focus. That has happened more times in Scripture with people like Gideon. When the Lord said, Hail, mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And Gideon said, Who, me? I, I am the youngest in my family of this poor family. Uh, in Judah, we're a no, I'm a nobody, come from a nothing family in an oppressed nation. God said, No, you're not. You're a mighty man of valor, and you're going to whip the Midianites as though it was just one man. So most struggles in life, most of them, are the result of a breakdown between objective and subjective focus. Letting the Lord teach you the discipline of objective focus isn't easy. In fact, it's the hardest part of growing in Christ that you'll ever experience is learning how to seek the Lord, put in enough time in fellowship with God, learn His Word to let Him free your mind from that intense, opinionated thing. And now my hand's up, because I know exactly what I'm talking about. And opinion, it's wonderful to be smart and to be analytical and be educated. However, the occupational hazard of being smart or analytical or educated is that it puts you in a thing called opinions. And you become hard in those opinions. And then it's tough for God to work through you. And the older people get, the longer they stay in that subjective focus, the harder it is for God to use them. The less and less they see the Holy Spirit moving in their life. If you're one of these people who says, how come... When I was younger as a believer, the anointing of God was flowing in my life, but as I get older, I see less of it. It's because the older you get, the more opinionated you become. The less you allow God to give you objective focus. In Psalm 119 and verse 99, David writes, I have better understanding and deeper insight than all of my teachers because your word is my meditation. David wasn't walking up and down the streets of Jerusalem, or actually, there really wasn't a Jerusalem at the time when David was was, uh, young, but walking up and down the streets of his town, studying everybody, peeping through the windows, uh, on Facebook, uh, trying uh, trying to character sketch everybody in his life. David was spending his time learning God, learning about God, fellowshipping with God. See, God knows everything, and he knows everything the right way. God's not messed up with a bad attitude. You ever notice how bad attitudes will warp how you see people? If you've had a hurt in your life, or if, if, if somebody with freckles beat you up when you were a kid, and you find yourself going through life, and every time you see a freckled-faced person, you're like, they're no good. Those people, freckled people, freckled people are not nice people. They're bad people. You see, we are, we are enslaved by our own negative experiences, and we impose those experiences on our focus so that now we just have outer focus. We see a freckled-faced person, And immediately, we put them in that mold. You can't serve God if you're going to be subjective in your focus. But David said, the reason why I am smarter than all of my teachers is because they got everything from books and from listening to other people. I've got mine from the Word of God and from prayer and fellowshipping with my God. Hallelujah. You can't go wrong. Let me, let, me, um, let me segue to my, my second and final point in this message. And I'd like to talk to you about <clears throat> running through a dark house. Nobody runs through a dark house. Think about it. Even though it's your house, you're just, first of all, you shuffle across the floor because you never know when somebody left something, and especially if you've got children. And, you know, you're moving slow and you're feeling your way through. A dark house, people don't run through a dark house. In fact, if somebody were to break into your house and you saw them running through your house and not running into anything, you'd think, I've been visited by a spirit, a ghost. Nobody, human, runs through the house. Can you say amen? Now, our opening scripture in Hebrew said something about running, and I want to just pull that little segment out for you. It's where the scripture says, so that you will run the race set before you looking to Jesus. In this world that we live in, this dark house, this house that Satan has taken over temporarily and has brought darkness upon the world, nobody's running. Very few people run through a dark house And if they do, they injure themselves. They crash and burn. And, um, but the author in Hebrews is saying we ought to be running this race. We should be strolling as a Christian. We shouldn't just be, you know, lollygagging along. We should be running, running. Nobody runs unless they've got a goal set in front of them. And so we run looking to Jesus. Why do we run looking to Jesus? Because he's the light of the world. And he knows where all the pitfalls are. He knows where all the people are. He knows who they are. So you can run through the dark house of this world if you've got your eyes on Jesus. People are afraid to run through a dark house except when God focuses them Then they're not afraid, they're brave. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 it says, When the Jewish leaders, religious leaders I mean, saw the boldness, the braveness of Peter and John and discovered that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized these men had been with Jesus. Glory to God. Don't you want people to recognize that you've been with Jesus? Do you know how you're recognized as having been with Jesus? The Bible says when they saw the bravery, when they saw how brave they were, and they realized, well, their boldness, their braveness isn't coming from the fact that they've got a Ph.D. or a D.D., or an MTH, it's not because they've been to school, it's not because they know somebody or they're in a particular clique. These guys have got a boldness that none of us have. They are brave, they are bold, they are speaking the Word of God. Even though we are telling them to shut that stuff up about Jesus and threatening to kill them, they won't stop. They're brave. And so they said, we've only seen this one place, those guys that follow Jesus. Those guys that follow Jesus, he's he's making them brave. Somebody say amen. amen. Focus on Jesus makes you brave. Now listen to me this morning. The great obstacle to every endeavor in life is the desire to be safe. Jesus doesn't give you the Holy Spirit to make you safe. Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit to make you brave. When God says, fear not, saith the Lord, He's about to give you focus for a frightening circumstance that you're about to go through. Not so that you'll be safe, but so that you'll be brave. God's plans are never safe. I haven't learned a lot in these decades since I first came to Christ. But one of the things I've learned is that whenever it's a real plan from God, it's dangerous. It's not safe. There's always plenty to be afraid of. And God always prefaces it when he talks to you about it by saying, be not afraid. Now listen to me. And he's about to give you the focus. God spoke to Joshua, who had been walking with Moses for 40 years across the Midian desert. They've now come back around 40 years later to Kadesh Barnea. They're about to cross over into the promised land where 40 years before, 10 out of the 12 spies that went into the land came back and said, Do not go into that place. There are giants there that will have you for breakfast. We can't do it. I don't care what Moses said. Moses may think he's talked to God. God may have said, but God doesn't know what he's talking about. Those people will kill us the minute we get across this Jordan River. Forty years later, they're back at Kadesh Barnea, and they're about to cross over. All of the people that said we can't do it have died off. All their children are standing at the riverbank, a generation that didn't know the fear. And they're about to cross over. And God speaks to Joshua. Listen to what God tells Joshua There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now, that's a focus, that's objective. Now, isn't it interesting because he's about to send Joshua into his career that will last the rest of his life as a military leader. He's going to spend the rest of his life in one battle after another. And so God commissions him as an officer in his army by saying, there'll not be a man that will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Does God know what he's talking about when he's about to send you into danger. But he goes on to say, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Here you go. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua then commanded the officers of the people and said, pass through the midst of the camp, command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. I want you to appreciate what's happening here. God is about to call Joshua to war for the next several years. Not a war he intends for them to lose, but a war he intends for them to win. A war of taking occupancy of the land that had once belonged to their forefather Abraham, given to him by covenant by the Almighty God, and no man can overturn it. But you have to go in and you have to fight these battles. And so God says to Joshua, Have not I commanded you? Now listen to me. How many of you are familiar with this verse? You've read it before. Have not I commanded you be strong? Here's how we normally hear it quoted. Have not I commanded you be strong and be of a good courage? That's how I heard it for years. Have not I commanded you be courageous? Have not I commanded you be strong, be bold, be brave? That's not how it's written. I checked it in every translation, looked at the original Hebrew, and let me tell you, it doesn't say that. It says, have not I commanded you? Question mark. That's where the sentence ends. Then the next sentence is, therefore, be strong and be courageous. So God is not saying, look, did I not command you to be strong and to be bold? If the Lord were to stand in front of you and say, "I got, stop that crying, stop that shaking," you would just start crying all the more, and you'd be shaking. And <laughs> the Lord's supposed to be comforting me. This isn't this isn't very comfortable. That's not what the Father said. The Father said to Joshua, "Who's commanding you? Have not I the living God?" Have not I who parted the Red Sea? Have not I who dispossessed Pharaoh? Have not I who delivered you from slavery? Am not I the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Moses? I am with you. That's what God said. Then the next sentence is, therefore, be courageous. So God's not shouting in our face saying, Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Have some courage. Buck up. God is saying, look to me. Recognize who is with you. I am with you, says the Lord. He's talking to him about focus. He's saying, focus on me, grasshopper. (laughs) Look, if you're waiting for God to give you a safe plan, prepare to disobey him. Prepare to rebel. Prepare to fail. If you're waiting for a vision and a dream, you're passing by all the scary ones, I bind you, devil. That's not of God. That can't possibly be. The Lord can't possibly be telling me to give all my money away. Lord can't possibly be telling me to leave my home. It, It can't be God to tell me to go up and talk to strangers. It's not in my personality. It's not my DNA. Why in the world did you get saved? If you like your old personality... And your old DNA so much, why did you come to Jesus to become a new creation? Make up your mind. You're either going to be a new creation or you're just going to cling to the old. You can't say, Jesus, come give me a new life. And then every time He calls you and it scares you a little bit to step out of your comfort zone and be somebody different, you can't stop and complain and go, oh, 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 throw the penalty flag and say, no, 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 it's not in my wheelhouse to be that way. God said, yeah, no, it's not. It's in my wheelhouse. I'm trying to bring you into my wheelhouse. You understand what I'm saying to you this morning? Yeah, I see you kind of getting this. Praise the Lord. So if you're waiting around for a safe plan, forget about it. God doesn't do safety. God is safety. The plans he gives are always scary plans. And they always require bravery because He plans to be your safety. Why won't God give me a safe plan? Because He's given you a safe Savior. He's given you a safe God. He is your safety. Now go walk on water. He is your safety. Now go preach and cast out devils. He is your safety. Now go declare the Word of God. Are you listening to me? Stop being subjective. Stop having a focus that forces God to do everything through the way you see things. Give that foolishness up. Either he's going to be Lord and he's not going to fight with you. He's not going to wrestle with you. If you insist on imposing your view and your conditions on everything, you're not going to know the leading of the Holy Spirit. What were those people doing in the upper room those days before the Holy Ghost fell? They were divesting themselves of all of their subjectiveness. I guarantee you that once they hit critical mass, once they had given up their fears and they said, Lord, whatever your will is, we believe you'll make us capable of doing it. Bang! The Holy Ghost fell. And that's what it takes, church. Are you listening to me? Stop dictating to God what you can do and what you can't do. Somebody say praise the Lord if you know what I'm talking about. Revelation 21 and 8 says that God will reject the cowardly and the faithless. In that list with murderers and thieves and liars, the list actually begins with the Lord will reject the fearful and the unbelieving. Wow, that's in a list with all of those other sins. You better believe it, because that will keep you from God. It shows that brave obedience is God's greatest concern regarding you. The thing about you that he's most concerned with is that you develop brave obedience. Somebody say amen. You can see in our modern culture the way children are taught in school, the way that everything is made to to remove discomfort from their life and to make everything comfortable and easy for them and to give them prizes and titles without them having to risk a thing or, or do anything to achieve it. The devil is cooking up. The human race for a gigantic failure to hand the human race to the Antichrist. He's producing a people incapable of bravery, incapable of facing opposition and challenge, and rising up with bravery and walking with God. While we're out there knocking on people's doors trying to lead them to Jesus, our teachers, our educators, and the leaders of our culture are draining the souls out of our children and destroying them. Mother, Father, listen to me. Don't give participation rewards to your kids. Don't remove them from competition. If you've got a little sapling tree you've planted in your yard, don't stake that thing up with seven different wires. Let the wind blow through it. My God, let the hurricane come and blow it. If it survives, it'll survive anything. And it'll be worthy of bearing fruit. And if it doesn't, it wouldn't. You'd be holding that thing up the rest of your life. God knows how to make people stand. Can you say amen? Now stop drawing me off sides. I I feel another, I feel I'm being pulled into another message here. I got to stay with this, got to bring this in for a landing. Bravery is not reckless boldness. It's not just going out and fake it till you make it. It's not going out and shouting and acting bold and doing stupid things. There's that television show on TV of Kids doing totally stupid, you know, skateboarding off a three story house and stuff like that. Idiots, total idiots. I think that's the name of the show. I don't know what, something like that. At any anyway, rate, I just look at it and just think, well, you gotta be kidding. You know, there are real battles in life and you gotta go do these kind of stupid things like this. You know, just if you want some battles, just grow up. They're coming. You wanna fight? They're coming. They're heading your way. You know, just stop being 13. Go try getting a job. You want to battle? You want to struggle? Go out. Try to convince an employer to hire you. Bravery, though, is not reckless boldness. It's boldness focused on Jesus' words at the other side of the storm-tossed sea that he's just asked you to cross with him. When you focus on Jesus who said let us go across to the other side. And the whole time he knew there was a storm that would arise that would threaten to capsize the boat. And He didn't bother to go around it. He went through it. But did he not say to you, Get in the boat, let us, you and I, go across to the other side. So when that boat's flying up and down on the waves and the wind is filling the thing with water, Just remember, Jesus said, you're going to the other side. He didn't say, let's go out into the lake and drown to death. He said, let's go to the other side. That's focus, people. Can you say praise the Lord? Lord. You know, we like to pray for God's will with safety as our prime concern. Lord, I'll do that if you do this. But uh, you know what God says? God says, Um, I'll do this, excuse me, you do this, and I'll do something. Prayer never works when it's, Lord, uh, if you do this, I'll do that. How it works is God said, you do that, and I'll do something. You ever notice, he he seldom tells you what he's going to do. He just says, do that, and I'll do something. You know what? Anything God does is good for me. It's good with me. Anything. Just do something. How many of you want God to do something in your life? Let me tell you, God wants to do something in your life. Something God does. God never does little things. Everything he does is awesome. Everything he does is wonderful. Hallelujah. God wants to do something in your life. And whatever it is, I guarantee you it is more frightening And more awesome than what you have planned for yourself. Uh, But if you'll come to him and if you'll ask and not fear for your own security, he'll give you your focus that'll get you through. And he'll command bravery into your heart. And he'll make you able to run through every dark house that he calls you into. Can you say amen? Amen. Close your Bible and stand with me this morning.